Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. Big ones, Isaiah 62. Good to see everybody this morning. If you're uh, watching uh, from home on our Facebook feed, uh, welcome. Um, I did that last week. Uh, made me thankful for the technology that allowed me to, to share in the service. Um, at the same time, uh, I pray that I don't have to do that very often. <laughs> I just miss being, you know, with the people. And um, there you go. Isaiah 62. We're going to pick up where uh, Mike's sermon ended last week, and that series ended, and into a new series. Uh, still in Isaiah, a watchman on the wall. And today, uh, the watchman's work. Watchman on the wall, and today the watchman's work. Verses 6 and 7, on your walls, Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night, they will never keep silent. You who profess the Lord, take no rest for yourselves, and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem an object of praise on the earth, the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, I do ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And Father, would, would ask each person listening, either here or maybe they are at home having to watch from home or will pick this up on the website at some point later I'd ask them to just pause right now and to think about the prayer the psalmist offers when he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be a wicked way in me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. So, Father, um, would your word search us out today? We want to stand on those promises we want to do so with whole hearts, firmly rooted in Jesus, in whose blessed name we pray, amen. If you were going into military service and asked for advice, one of the first things a veteran would tell you is, don't volunteer for anything. <laughs> you veterans know. You know what that means, don't, don't volunteer for anything. But let me ask, has there ever been a time when you were so moved within yourself that you couldn't help but volunteer? That your hand just went up like an out-of-body experience, oh, wait, my hand's up. You were so moved. Maybe it was the overwhelming emotion of love. And suddenly um, you're, you're feeling that you're finding time in what you thought was a very busy schedule, but not all that busy now because motivated, moved, apprehended uh, by love. 
Or perhaps you uh, felt compassion. You saw somebody in great need. Like, like the Samaritans saw the, the man in the ditch. And you stop and you give of time and you give of resource. You have to prioritize things a bit different. Or maybe, um, maybe you came upon a, a dire situation, a life or death situation, and without any thought of personal safety, you just dove in, did what was necessary. According to reports out of Kansas City, that is what Trey and Casey Filter did this past week when they stopped the gunman who had begun shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl victory parade. They, they said, and I quote, we did what we felt we needed to do. I don't think we could have just walked away from being right there. That we could not just walk away. Some years ago, I, I read a book titled Holy Discontentment. And that book helped me to discern the difference between being dissatisfied, you know, kind of in a fleshly um, self-promoting way and being dissatisfied because there is a cause so great, so glorious, let your kingdom come, like we just finished singing, uh, your cause, O oh Lord, right? So glorious that you can't just walk away from being right there. It's, it's right there. The cause is so great, you can't walk away from it. It's right in front of you. This is why my hand goes up when I read Psalm 62. Or when I uh, read Brian's essay that he wrote, it's on the front of your bullet from, from uh, Habakkuk chapter number 2. It's why my hand, it goes up when I see lost people, lonely, like sheep without a shepherd, wandering. It's why my hand goes up when I drive around our villages or rural community, this hamlet, and I think about places that were once vibrant for Jesus, churches that were full, and now people in the grip of deep spiritual darkness. It's, it's why my hand goes up when I think about family members or friends that are lost. They were without Christ. They were without God. They have no hope. I mean, how could my hand not go up when I, when I think about those things? Now, I, I don't want you to think I'm starting a pep rally here. We're not going to do the wave, right? No, we're not doing a pep rally. Because the things that bring discontentment are actually out of my control. And that's hard. That's why this isn't a pep rally. It's a wrestling match that begins just a few chapters back. If you want to turn to chapter number 59, it begins with God wanting his people to know two things. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his, is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 
God wants his people to know two things. One, his hand is not shortened. His ear is not heavy so that it can't hear. But then he wants his people also to know that it's their wrongdoings that have separated them from God and separated him from them. That their sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. And when you put those two truths together, you get uh, a tension that pulls from three different directions, which is why this isn't a pep rally. It's a wrestling match. It's something we have to wrestle with as we feel the tension of this passage that, one, we do not control outcomes. God controls outcomes. The renewal of this congregation St. James, the village of Fort Edward, this hamlet, broken, lonely, lost people, friends, family. God's business. I, I can't control the outcome. That's a tension. At the same time, pulling on my life is that our sins negatively impact the work God does. That we have to be continuously aware that there is God's business and yet our sins, as Peter described, do negatively impact the work that God is doing. And the third tension, right, that God will complete his work despite our sins. Which... Some people take to mean it's a green light. They can just go ahead and live as they want to live. But no, that's not the case because the second part is still true. That our sins negatively impact God's work. And yet, the first part is true that God controls all the outcomes. That's why it's a wrestling match. And it's not like some kind of a mental gymnastic. It's a spiritual deeply like entrenched thing in your life that when you feel what you feel for the cause of God you put it into a place like Isaiah 59 and you say oh God please work change me and in spite of my failures work through me Work through your church. I mean, we, we, we can get to a point where we say, well, well, what are we to do? What are we to do? How can people who require rescue rescue other people? If someone's drowning in the lake and you don't know how to swim, you may want to be able to save them but if you get in the water, now we have two drowning people in the swimming pool, right? How can people who require rescue, rescue others? In the language of Isaiah 62, how can we be faithful watchmen when we just struggle to be faithful every day? And praise God that the, the scripture gives us an answer and, and, and here, here it is. It, it'll be up on, on the screen for you. God 
is the one who turns to us and he is the one who turns us to himself. This is such an important biblical principle to lock in lest you think this series is about a pep rally trying to get more people to do something. This series is about coming and admitting that God is the one who turns to us and he is the one who turns us to himself. And that's rooted then in uh, the words of Jeremiah in his laments over the waywardness of Israel in chapter 5 and verse 21. And we'll put it on the screen when Jeremiah says, Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord. And we shall be turned. I, I looked at about, I don't know, probably five or six different translations. And most of them, if you do look at it later, your translation will probably say restore. Which I just, I like that, but I don't think, it's the, I don't think it captures the meaning. Restore is a rather passive word. Turning somebody is a, a little more invasive, isn't it? You're going in this direction, and then somebody says, nope, now you're going to go, you know, in this direction. And we say to God, turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. And just, just think about the, the impact of a merciful, loving God reaching down and turning you. And in turning you, you are turned and you are saved. Think about the impact. The all-powerful God whose arm is not shortened, his ear is not heavy, that when a people of God become renewed and revived and Sins are confessed and they take up their appointment as watchmen on the wall. God then takes whole communities and turns them. And they will be turned. One of my favorite things to do, especially during the Lenten season, is to read poetry. And my favorite poet theologian, Malcolm Geit, wrote this. In a daring and beautiful creative reversal, God takes the worst we can do to him and turns it into the very best he can do for us. God takes the very worst we can do for him and he takes it and he does the very best he can do for us. You see, we take our place as watchmen on the wall because God has turned to us and has turned us to himself. We, we make room for holy discontentment. We raise our hands to volunteer because there is no God like our God who takes that which is forsaken and desolate, as Mike preached last week from the first part of chapter number uh, 62. And what does he do? He makes it his delight. So that he rejoices over us. 
as he takes the worst we can do to him and he makes it the very best of what he can do for us. And so we raise our hand and we say, yes, oh God, because there is no one like you among the gods, oh Lord. There's no one like you. And it's on this basis then of the gospel, of what God in Christ has done, that I invite you to join me on the wall in the work of the watchman. The one who take no rest, the ones who make God weary until he makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. And I don't ask you to join me in this because, you know, we loved God first. It's because he has first loved us. And when holy discontentment that is rooted in the gospel becomes the watchword for the watchmen, the church will have no trouble finding people who, like the couple in Kansas City, are right there and won't walk away. Stirring, moving, working. And, and you know, and I realize, <coughs> excuse me, these are somewhat, you know, lofty sounding uh, ambitions, right? But let me remind us that the appointment of watchmen was not only for the time of Isaiah and uh, Habakkuk. It is for you and it's for me. It's for us. It's for the people of God. But, but because we are conditioned to think that, you know, we have to be some kind of a super Christian to be used by God, or we have to be like a supersized church, you know, with all the bells and whistles nationally known or whatever, before we can do anything meaningful for God, let me remind you that some of the most faithful and fervent men and women in the Bible who were on the wall watching, you know, they appeared rather briefly on the pages of Scripture. Names, quite honestly, right, we tend not to remember. But, you know, in a, in a market-driven religious society like we live in, religion trying to get its share of the market, you know, in competition with all the other distractions and things that are out there, the church goes like, oh, man, we need a little bit more. No, no. We need fervency from faithful people. We need fervency from faithful people whose names won't be ever known. Like Boaz. We spent the last four weeks reading the story of his redeeming of the Moabite Ruth. The faithful people like Simeon and Anna, who although they were in their golden years, right, advanced in age, were still on the wall watching, waiting for God's promise to come. The godly women like Phoebe, who Paul says has been a helper to many. And if you read the rest of Romans 16, where she is mentioned at the beginning, you'll find more names of watchmen who raise their hands to serve God. But you know what? Myself included, we couldn't say hardly any of their names. You might eke out, you know, Aquila and Priscilla. But that's probably about as far as you'd get. And don't forget 
the 120 followers of Jesus that Luke mentions at the beginning of Acts 1, you know, we're only given the name of 14 of them. And yet there were 120 there faithfully in prayer, waiting as Jesus had commanded them to do. And you know, of that 14, we only really know a little bit about a few of them. And yet on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit broke out, there they all went out into the streets to preach the gospel. So, so we have to swim against, you know, the current in America that says you need more than just faithfulness and fervency. You got to be super this or super that. Apparently not according to the scriptures. My point is the exact point that E.M. Bounds made in his book, Power Through Prayer, a book that was written in 1910. Somebody did the math for me down at St. James. How many years ago was that? What, Robert? 114 years ago. See, 114 years ago, the church faces the same problems that the church is facing today. And Ian Bounds writing at a time when, you know, uh, the point towards uh, men, uh, you know, everybody, of course, is included in this, but I'm going to be faithful to the quote. Listen to what he writes. I think it's going to be up on the screen for us. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men and women whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come upon machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. Probably a lot of you, like me, have that book somewhere stuck on your shelf, and you haven't read it for a while. Probably be a good one to pull out, Ken Prater, and read it again. So as we begin this Watchman series, I want to make this promise I'm not going to use cheap tricks. We won't be giving out snicker bars for those that will join us in prayer. We're not going to use spiritually debilitating, soul-crushing guilt to try to get you to pray more. We're not going to use cheap tricks. I don't want to motivate you out of the flesh when I ask you to join me as a watchman in prayer. But I promise to simply use the means of grace poured out in Jesus Christ. This means that in the watchman series, I'm going to be weaving in week after week these three means of grace, the three primary means of grace. One, what is the meaning of baptism? That we have been buried with Christ in his likeness and we have been raised in the likeness of his resurrection. What is the implication to your baptism? 
And why as Baptists do we so often not even talk or think about baptism? Even though it's in our, in our name. What does it mean to have identified with Jesus Christ? And then to remember this blessed table to where Jesus invites us to come with our feelings, to come with our sins, to come with our brokenness, to come and say, Lord Jesus, you know, I really wanted to pray more this last week, you know, whatever it is. And, and you know, I'm me, forgive me. Here I am again, forgive me. And to know that what Christ did then on his cross, symbolically portrayed here at this table, his body broken, his blood shed, is what then not only forgives us, but releases us, gives us power, gives us confidence to return to that place of prayer, to get back on that wall and say, yes, oh God, let me call out to you in prayer. And then to draw us to the meaning of the Holy Scriptures where we find God's agenda for prayer, where we find God's concerns for prayer. To know that when the kingdom comes in our lives, it will be evidenced because we've set aside our agendas and we've lined up with God's agenda for the work he is doing in this world. We remember these things because it is through them that the Spirit leads and empowers the church to use her unique gifts. All of us who are in Christ have been gifted by the Spirit of God to use those gifts. We've each been given personalities that are to be filled with the Spirit that we use this basic components of our lives. And we all know people. We all have influences, varied as they may be. But all of those things, empowered by the Holy Spirit then, Watchmen on the wall, looking out, praying, asking God to work, whether it's through our gifts or through our personalities or through our influences, wherever that may be. And we won't be afraid to raise our hands and, and volunteer, right? Unlike the, unlike the new recruit going to the basic training, he's got it in his mind. Don't volunteer for anything. Don't volunteer for anything. We're not going to be afraid to raise our hand and volunteer for everything. Why? Because God is with us. God has appointed us. He's appointed us to be on the wall watching in prayer as his people. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, the good news of God's salvation has been completed in Jesus. It is for us. It will be consummated at his glorious return when he will judge the living and the dead. And it's good to know that through Jesus Christ, Jerusalem is becoming a praise in all of the earth. And in this in-between time, we have been given the glorious, joy-filled privilege to pray for God to turn us. And we will be turned. To pray for God to turn people we love, people we know, our communities around us, and to pray that God will turn them to himself. Well, this gospel stewardship, the watchman on the wall has been passed down from generation to generation of faithful followers of Jesus. I pray that we will pick up the task 
And as they had to order their lives accordingly, may God grant us the grace to do the same. Watchman on his wall. Father, I pray now that you would take your word and embed it deeply within us and help us, O oh God, to not be afraid. For you are with us. To not be afraid. For you are with us. As we pause for a few moments of quietness to prepare our hearts to celebrate at this blessed table, let us find the encouragement then, O oh God, to take our place appointed as watchmen on the wall. I'm going to leave you in quietness until uh, Mike comes and leads us at the table. The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G.